G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're setting our sights on understanding today Islamic terrorism and the idea that terrorism might be just the tip of a deeper religious battle for control. We might be on a bit of a theme here today, having chatted with Bill Muhlenberg uh, just a little earlier, talking about uh, that uh, rainbow big brother idea and the psychological battle that's going on, the way that there are those who are trying to manipulate our thoughts, manipulate our behaviours for their own ends. Well, there is a psychological battle that's raging around the world, a battle for hearts and minds. And if you're wondering what religion has to do with the conflicts around the world, some discussion today around the power of religious propaganda and the harsh religious laws that enslave people. Well, you might like to join in our conversation. Uh, you're invited to. We'll open our talkback lines on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Our special guest through this coming hour, talking through these issues, Elizabeth Kendall, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as director of advocacy at Canberra-based. Christian Faith and Freedom, and she's an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffries Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne University, uh, Melbourne School of Theology, rather. Uh, she's authored a couple of books, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and also her latest book is called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. So a special welcome to Elizabeth Kendall. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Neil. Elizabeth, always love talking to you about the sorts of things we'll talk about today. And when I say this is uh, like the, the tip of the iceberg, when we talk about terrorism, well, I suspect that the mainstream media is obsessed with the tip of the iceberg only and not those things that are deeper down. Uh, there are deeper challenges, are there not, when it comes to understanding religion and politics and conflict around the world? Oh, look, they're so deep. And I think one of the great problems that we have in media today is that uh, not only the fact that it moves so fast, but so many people who are reporting media have no real understanding of the issues that they're dealing with. So they're, they're being uh, fed very carefully by people who have interests and they grab what they're fed and they run with it and they don't have the understanding to see... Uh, the implications and, and that, that maybe that they're being fed a lie, that they're being fed propaganda for the purpose of of having people's uh, interests fulfilled. And there's a real lack of discernment in much media today. Well, earlier this week, I was talking to Professor Peter Riddell, and he's one of your colleagues mm. uh, with the Melbourne School of Theology, and we were talking about the story that is unfolding in Indonesia right now and uh, revolving around the Christian governor of Jakarta, Ahok. 
Now, he provides something of a good illustration for some of the things that are going on uh, for what we'll want to talk about in our our conversation today, understanding uh, Islamic thinking, Islamic terrorism, Islamic law. Uh, You've been following closely along what's happening with AHOC in Indonesia too. Uh, Is there uh, anything you, uh, your insights with the the latest developments with what's going on with him? Well, the uh, the trial is going to start, as far as I can see, on Tuesday of next week, so Tuesday the 13th. <clears throat> and uh, um, President Jokowi has uh, said that it must be televised live because he wants everyone to see it. He wants it so transparent that no one can accuse, you know, the courts of not of not not following due process. And he wants it to be over in two weeks. Now, whether he'll get it over in two weeks, uh, I don't know. But it's going to be very interesting because to have it broadcast live, I mean, this is a platform like I don't think Indonesia has ever seen before. And uh, I, no matter what happens, Indonesia will never be the same. This is a watershed moment for Indonesia. Uh, that's right. And when we talk about the rise of Islam, usually we're talking about the Middle East and North Africa. And yet uh, just to our north, Indonesia, uh, the biggest uh, nation uh, by population of of uh, Muslims in the world, uh, well, they are going through right now what could be uh, the rise of something very significant by way of fundamentalist Islam. Is that the way you see things beginning to unfold to our north? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there have been there have been a couple of uh, Islamist protests against AHOC, uh, condemning his blasphemy and condemning the government for not uh, arresting him and imprisoning him immediately, because that's normally the procedure, not just in Pakistan but in Indonesia as well. So they've been uh, protesting that, and on each case, the Islamists have managed to pull out about two hundred thousand fundamentalist Muslims. They have filled the streets and parks of Jakarta. They are unprecedented in their size and scope. There have been two, I think there's been two protests by uh, people, uh, you know, demonstrating in favour of tolerance and a, a secular society and religious freedom. And those protests have managed to pull about 20,000 and 30,000. So they can't bring out the same sort of numbers. Now, the thing is that, um, you know, Islam has been rising in these countries for some time. And even uh, President Susila Bambang Yudhiyono, he did a lot to advance Islam. He presented himself as a moderate. And in, I would say exactly the same way as General Musharraf did in Pakistan. He presented himself as a moderate uh, and uh, very much very liberal, and yet at the same time, the Islamists held the balance of power in Parliament. Now, we in Australia understand what this means. You know, if anyone understands it, I think we do, that there is no one as powerful as he who holds the balance of power, even if it's just one person. So you've got this little small group uh, in Indonesia holds the balance of power, and right through Susila Bang Bang Yudhiyono's rule... He was brokering deals with Islamists. It was Cecilia Bang Bang Yudhiyono that brought in, well, they called them anti-pornography laws, but really they were Islamic laws, you know, where women couldn't show their bare forearms or their ankles, you know, uh, or various laws against um, heresy that saw the Ahmadiyyas bashed and persecuted and killed. 
um, in during Udiono's time, every single blasphemy case that came to the courts, every single one of them was found guilty and, and prosecuted. So he did a lot to advance Islam. None of this has it hasn't come from nowhere. The ground has been well and truly prepared for it. Now, if we talk about a transparent trial, and as you say, this is likely to start next week uh, for AHOC, and it has to be transparent, doesn't it? And both sides uh, will be wanting that transparency to go their way. Uh, Tell me about how this transparency gives a rise to uh, the issues of Islam, perhaps that we've not seen before and uh, they might be shaking at the knees a little bit in Indonesia with what might happen because a transparent trial, everybody, all eyes in Indonesia, perhaps all eyes in the world, will be on what's happening in Indonesia next week. Oh, I think it's absolutely huge. It's, it's, um, it is absolutely huge. Here you have a Christian, a Christian governor, ethnic Chinese Christian, is going to be given the platform... And it's going to, I, we're going to have to pray for this man, for Ahok or for uh, Basuki Panama, his name is. But Ahok, I'm so glad he's got a nice short uh, yes. uh, name that we can remember, um, nickname we can remember easily. We must pray for him because he is being given, and I, you know, by God, I believe God is sovereign in this. He is being given a platform, uh, not just to defend himself against the charge of blasphemy, but to really, I believe, uh, witness to a superior way and to a better way, the way of, of freedom and the way of Christianity and the problems of Islam is going to drive the Islamists completely crazy. And if he's not, if he's not convicted, uh, they, will, they will riot. And I think that the, fam, the flames of jihad will burst across Indonesia if he does not go to jail. But at the same time, he is going to have an opportunity during this trial, I think, to witness in a powerful way. And I think that another one of the one another trend we will see is a further polarization of Muslims in Indonesia. I think there will be more more Muslims being radicalized, and more Muslims will apostatize. I think it's going to be very, very interesting. Well, let's get into some of the issues around why he might need to stand trial. And uh, I I agree, there's so many things to pick up out of what you're uh, talking about. But let's get into this idea that there are even such things called blasphemy laws. Uh, Because uh, I've read the sorts of things that he was now uh, charged with, accused of, and it didn't look too bad to me. But if you're a Muslim, it might look a little bit different. What did he say, Elizabeth, and why has what he said been termed blasphemous? Well, basically, as soon as he was uh, declared to be one of the contenders, so I think it was the 24th of September, uh, AHOC was declared with two two others. So it's a three-horse race for the governor of Jakarta when they go to the polls in February next year. As soon as that was declared, the fundamentalist cleric started uh, preaching in the mosques immediately and speaking publicly against uh, voting for a non-Muslim because the Quran says in, um, in chapter 5, verse 51, that Muslims must not take non-Muslims as their leaders. 
Now, the word in Arabic is aliyah, which is often pro, uh, uh, translated as um, allies or friends or guardians. And as uh, Mark Dury, who's a, a linguist and an expert in Islam, notes, the Indonesian uh, Quran, it's translated as leaders. And the reason it's translated as leaders is because that is the standard Islamic understanding. Muslims are not to vote for non-Muslims. They are not to elect non-Muslims as their leaders. So what, what Ahok did was a couple of days later, on the 27th of September, he was speaking to a group of uh, officials and he sort of made light of it. And it was, he was speaking in jest and everyone was giggling and he said, look, you don't have to vote for me if you've been lied to with, you know, Quran, Surah chapter 5, verse 51. You don't have to vote for me. You don't have to vote for Ahok. And the fact that he said, you've been lied to with this verse uh, immediately uh, set, you know, all the bristles on all the clerics, you know, stood up. Because what is he saying here? Is he saying the Quran is lying to us? Or is he saying that the clerics are lying by misquoting the Quran? Um, he apologized, but the clerics are met and they, this, the, the largest union of clerics in Indonesia agreed that he had committed blasphemy against the Quran and blasphemy against the clerics and should be tried for blasphemy. <laughs> Let's see if we can connect this with some of the things we might understand in Australia, uh, anti-discrimination laws, uh, which we do have in Australia uh, and uh, which are under debate. And, uh, you know, people talk about those anti-discrimination laws, uh, uh, 18C and D. Uh, but is there something similar to uh, what is a blasphemy law? And we don't have a blasphemy law in Australia, but... Uh, but it's, they're very similar, aren't they? And they can actually be used as weapons in the same way. Exactly. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is something that Western leaders, this is something I need to write about soon, uh, but Western leaders need to understand this. They say things like that all the time. Uh, how many times have you heard our politicians say, you don't have to go out and fight jihad just because you've been lied to with the Koran? Uh, you know, and then and then they then they tell us what they believe the Quran says. No, they say the Quran says this, that, and the other. And every day when our politicians speak like this, they are committing blasphemy. And the only reason there are lots of reasons why they aren't accused of blasphemy. And, and as I said, that's something I need need to write about. But yes, the the thing with the West is the the weapons aren't in place. So there isn't a blasphemy law that the Islamists can pick up and wield against our political leaders when they make these the same sort of statements. They could use uh, 18C and say that their feelings were off were offended, but it's a lot more risky. Or they could say suggest they've been vilified if they're in Victoria. We have an anti-vilification law. These laws, 18C and the anti-vilification laws. They are similar, but probably don't have quite the same power. But you've already started to, I would say, take a step onto that slippery slope as soon as you, you head down that course. 
Now, he is likely, we're talking AHOC, likely to be jailed because I think you mentioned a little earlier in our conversation that when they've had these blasphemy charges in Indonesia of recent times, in fact, uh, there's only like one or two people have ever got off without being jailed. So the likelihood is AHOC is going to be jailed. And, of course, there would be ramifications for the whole community if he's not. How does that all work? Oh yes, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be incredible. So um, uh, yeah, now here are the statistics. There were 15 blasphemy cases tried between 1965 and 1998. So almost a 30-year period. 15 cases. One a newspaper editor was acquitted. But in the 10 years of Susilo Bang Bang Udiono, that's 2004 to 2014. There were 51 cases, so it has skyrocketed. And every single one was convicted, 100% conviction rate. So uh, this is really going to be very difficult, I would say, to get AHOC off this charge. The lawyers... In fact, AHOC's looking quite nervous now. He was very convinced, he was very certain that he had not... Uh, blasphemed and there was no problem there was not going to be be an issue it was all political and uh, when when the police decided that yes there is a charge to face and sent it to trial he realized things were, were more difficult more more troubling now the police say that they were divided on their decision as to whether they should send it to trial or dismiss it and because they were divided they decided it should go to trial. So um, it's all going to be tested in open court and the judge is going to have to wear it. And, yeah, there's a very good possibility that he could end up facing five years in prison. And regardless, I reckon there's a very good possibility that his life is in danger, from, especially if he's acquitted. I would say that he will need uh, bodyguards for the rest of his life. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. We're talking through an idea to understand Islamic terrorism as just being the tip of a deeper religious battle for control. Our special guest this hour, Elizabeth Kendall, is a uh, international religious liberty analyst, uh, one of our favourite guests on 2020, and talking through these issues, uh, something that Elizabeth loves to do. Elizabeth, we've been talking about blasphemy laws and in the context of what's happening with our neighbours in the north, in Indonesia, and AHOC, charged with blasphemy laws. Now, there are some other laws that are also at work in Islamic societies, and uh, wherever there is Sharia, law there's also apostasy laws Uh, what's the issue with apostasy laws and how they might be related to blasphemy laws well both apostasy uh, apostasy is the leaving of islam so an uh, an anti-apostasy law is a law that says you may not leave islam so no freedom whatsoever Uh, once you're in it and you're born into it if your father's a muslim you are you're not allowed to leave the, the penalty in most Islamic systems for apostasy or leaving Islam is death. In, for blasphemy, in most cases, the, it's the same. It's a capital offence in many situations. In Indonesia, uh, it'll, it could give AHOC five years in jail, but Muslims, fundamentalist Muslims, will still believe that he deserves to die. 
So you've got these two laws, the law on blasphemy, the law on apostasy. And, you know, they really are forms of terrorism. They keep people trapped into Islam in a state of terror. And, you know, there's a famous uh, a Muslim Brotherhood figure, Yusuf uh, Karadawi. He's actually the, um, the head of the International Union of Muslim Scholars and a leading light in the global Muslim Brotherhood movement. And just a few years ago, in February 2013, he said on uh, Egyptian television, he was defending the death for apostasy uh, position, law, and he said, if Muslims had ever gotten rid of the punishment, that is death, for apostasy, Islam would not exist today. Now, what a, what a sad admission. But basically... What, he, what this confirms is that Islam is so philosophically weak uh, that it can only retain its adherents through terror by threatening them with death, death for apostasy and death for blasphemy. Wow. I mean, sometimes, and just reflecting back in a connection to a conversation just before we came on uh, talking through this topic, Elizabeth talking about uh, the rainbow uh, laws, uh, the Big Brother idea uh, with Bill Muhlenberg just in, in our conversation earlier and uh, drawing some connections between cult mind control and the idea that, uh, that uh, there is a controlling influence. Uh, if you don't obey the laws, uh, then you will be uh, put to death or excommunicated or whatever it might be. There is so, such a similarity with that, that sort of mind control element and uh, the idea that a religion like Islam uh, has to have punishment of death for people who want to leave is a controlling influence, is it not? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, in the West, of course, uh, Muslims can't lock us up for blasphemy and they can't kill us for apostasy, or, although I think there have been some killings for apostasy and blasphemy, sort of uh, underhanded killings in, in, in the West. But what they can do is they can call us very nasty names. They can call us Islamophobes and, and racists, and that's what they do. And it's very effective in the West. We don't like it at all. And, of course, that's exactly what the... the the LGBTIQ, you know, the gay lobby does as well. They call us homophobes and bigots. And it all works the same way. I mean, uh, we're not being threatened with death. We're not at risk of death. We're at risk of some really highly offensive names that we really don't like being called. And, uh, but they're used in exactly the same way. They're used to silence us and to make us think twice about having anything to say on, on, this posi- on either of these positions. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. I think it is Samoa from Sydney. Hello, welcome along. Hey, how are you? Very well. What are your thoughts on our conversation today? Oh, it's awesome. You know, um, I came to Australia from Samoa, New Zealand, uh, back in 88. I uh, didn't know anything about Muslim at all. Until I find a job, I walk in this job, I see a woman, they cover their head. And I ask one of the guys, what, uh, what's a nun doing here? And they say, that's not a nun, it's a uh, Sunni or whatever those their name. But uh, at the moment, uh, I'm a bus driver in Sydney. There were a couple of Lebanese came in the bus and started a conversation. And uh, 
they told me the Bible is actually corrupt. And then I grabbed my Bible and I said, show me in the Bible where the Bible is corrupt. And then they look each other, they don't know what they're talking about. Mm. So what's happening, uh, I have problems with uh, these uh, Muslim people, the uh, Lebanese and all that. Uh, I want job, I sack from job to job after job. And I realized they are Muslim. They are all these people. And one, one of the jobs in Sydney, when I arrived from Melbourne in 93, and I find a job as uh, cleaning the car, and uh, one of the Lebanese Muslim uh, working there, he become, uh, he become the guy, also guy that he doesn't know anything. He's not a church man, but I'm a church man. I'm a born again Christian anyway. So I was just telling him, no way, one day I'll buy two dogs. I call one Muhammad and call other one uh, Allah. And then they were angry and they went down. He disappeared and he come out with about four or five uh, other Lebanese. I was ready to fight, but they walk away. Anyway. So, Mo, I'm going to have to cut you short because we're only a minute out from news. Uh, but a comment from uh, Elizabeth Kendall on uh, some of the things that Samoa might have been uh, sharing there. Uh, Elizabeth, your thoughts very quickly. Yes, well, it's the standard Islamic uh, understanding that the Bible is corrupt, right? The scriptures are corrupted. And that that's why Muhammad had to come and give us a brand new revelation. And this whole theology is designed to explain the differences between the Quran and the Bible, which are absolutely insurmountable, the amount of differences, and to stop Muslims from wasting their time looking at the scriptures. So once again, it's, it's a way of manipulating Muslims. Don't bother looking at the Bible. It's all corrupt anyway. But, um, yes, so that's just a standard Islamic line to keep Muslims out of the Bible. Okay, well, thank you so much uh, for your call. Uh, we'll be taking more calls after the news, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. We're talking about... Uh, issues to do with blasphemy and apostasy and mind control. Elizabeth Kendall, for a thousand years, Islam was the dominant religious power in the world. But uh, for various reasons, it went into decline and now in the world is relatively militarily powerless in the world. It becomes the little guy in a struggle against the big guys and there's some terminology which many listeners might not be so familiar with, but the idea of what is called asymmetric conflict. You might like to unpack that a little for us and, uh, and explain how this little guy against the big guy idea is fueling terrorism. Yes, well, this is one of the keys to understanding uh, the, con the conflicts in the world today. We, if you don't understand asymmetric conflict, you will not understand virtually any of the conflicts in the world today. <clears throat> now, an asymmetric conflict is one that's being fought between two unequal forces, one weak and one strong. Now, let me give you uh, an example, some examples, right? So in, in the last uh, 50, 60 years, we've had the case of the Viet Cong, right? That, that's a weak, a weak band versus the United States Army, obviously strong. Afghan Mujahideen, Weak versus the Soviet Union, strong. The Bosnian Islamic secessionists in Bosnia who are weak compared to the state of Yugoslavia. And you've got Muslim ethnic Albanian separatists in Kosovo who are weak in comparison to the state of Serbia. You've got Muslim militias 
who are weak compared to the state of Ivory Coast. And even most recently, you've got, uh, you know, Islamic jihadists uh, who are weak in comparison to the Libyan regime in Tripoli or, uh, you know, the, the Syrian government. These are all weaker forces versus strong states. But you know what? In all those cases I mentioned, uh, right up to, to Libya, from, the, from Vietnam up through to Libya, all those cases, the weak prevailed against the strong because it's becoming increasingly difficult today for a strong force to prevail against a weaker force that has perfected the art of asymmetric warfare. And asymmetric warfare, because the weak force does not have the military might to go out and win a battle militarily, it has to rely on psychological warfare. All the real warfare takes place in the media and uh, through diplomacy, and, and it's aimed at uh, turning, turning us around, uh, us, mainly you know, the, the uh, constituents of strong powers, so that our governments will go in and fight on the side of these weak forces, as they keep doing. So, I mean, the West has been fighting you know, on the side of Islamic jihadists in the Balkans and in Libya and in the Middle East today, constantly because they're, they're being drawn in, often by propaganda. They go in, they say, uh, on a humanitarian mission. And we watch the news and we see these poor children and we always see the children of one side only. In, in Syria, we see the poor children of eastern Aleppo and we weep for them because it's terrible what they're suffering but they never show us the children in Western Aleppo who are being killed by rebel rockets and having their throats cut by uh, invading terrorists. So the whole thing is media-driven, propaganda-based, and that's how they fight. And their main aim is to convince their enemy to stop fighting, is to convince their enemy to give up or to bring in an even stronger force who can win the battle for them. And we have to have our radar tuned on and not to be sucked in by the propaganda. I imagine it's something similar, or not taking us off on any tangents, but something similar with what's happening with Palestinians and Israelis as well. It's a, that's an asymmetric conflict as well, Elizabeth. Absolutely. I mean, and, and the thing with the, with the like, say, with Hamas uh, in Gaza, it actually knows it, does, it can never beat Israel militarily. I mean, it knows that. But what it does is it picks a fight with Israel and then it makes political mileage out of getting clobbered, being weak and getting clobbered. So Hamas picks a fight with Israel. Israel responds and knocks out its, uh, its uh, weapons caches and everything, which are often hidden in very you know, strategic locations. Uh, around schools and hospitals and the like and all the pictures go straight to the media and they say look what you know great big israel goliath is doing to us poor little palestinian davids and they you know reverse the whole picture and everyone cries and looks at the poor palestinian children but the whole thing is set up to win the hearts and minds of the western world so the western world will speak out against israel uh, Israel didn't start this fight. Israel's trying to, to stop it from happening again. But uh, the whole thing is uh, driven by propaganda 
and the whole purpose is to win political points because Hamas knows it can't beat Israel uh, militarily. Now, Elizabeth, take us another step deeper. We're talking about a psychological warfare that happens whenever there is the little guy versus the big guy. The temptation uh, for those in government is to appease what happens because there's all sorts of things, uh, propaganda and the threat of violence, the threat of terror, Tell me about that word appeasement, and if you're a Christian trying to make sense of where you'd stand in all of this, uh, how does appeasement actually work significantly against uh, peace? Well, to appease uh, terrorists is to give them ground, uh, which, which must never happen. We need to remember that the terrorists are resorting to terrorism because they cannot defeat us militarily. Right? They have, uh, I mean, in the Middle East, they have tanks now. They, some of them have, um, you know, anti-tank weapons. They even have uh, shoulder-launched, you know, uh, surface-to-air missiles. But they don't have uh, anything like the army of a strong state. They are weak militarily at this point. We can't guarantee it's going to stay that way, but they are weak. So what they do is they resort to terrorism. And there's a great quote in, uh, in a book by uh, Michael Christie's name is a former Marine. He says, um, what is a suicide bomber but the poor man's smart bomb? And that, that, that tells the story perfectly. If you are strong and you are wealthy and you are intelligent and you are on top of your field, you have a smart bomb. If you have nothing, you strip explosives to the body of a child and and send them in and they and they blow the thing up so so a suicide bomber is a poor man's smart bomb we're taking calls 1-800-316-316 quite a number of calls coming through so we'll uh, we'll try and get through some calls quickly let's hear from val in Mackay. hello val welcome along oh hi um yes it's a very big issue and it's a lot bigger than some people think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, people call it, you know, culture. But it's it's an ideology, and it has to be seen as such. And um, I, I think a good book to read is um, The Story of Muhammad by Harry, Christ- uh, Harry Richardson. And it's a real eye-opener about terrorism, and it goes back to how... Muhammad was. Now, um, another point I want to make, uh, saying it's a bigger issue, I mean, we know who's behind this whole issue. It's totally against uh, Christianity. It's a diabolical antithesis of Christianity. And um, it, it's satanic in its origin. And um, um, Irvine Baxter says, and I think he's right, the four horses in Revelation 6, the fourth horse is a pale horse, and that word actually is chlorus. It's green. It's a green horse. And um, we know his colour is green. That's, that's the colour of, of Islam. And death and hell follow after. Um, Val, some interesting insights in there. A, a response from Elizabeth Kendall. Uh, thank you, Val. Yes, this is about Islam. This is about the ideology of Islam. 
And uh, while we have to not appease the Islamist, the Islamic terrorists, we have to stand firm against terrorism and not allow it to sway our policy because that's what it's designed to do. It's meant to cause us to be so terrorised that we'll change our policy. We have to stand firm and not appease, but at the same time we must deal with the, with the ideology. If we, can, if we fail to confront the ideology of Islam, if we fail to confront this philosophy that is so weak it has to use blasphemy and apostasy laws to keep its people, we're not going to get anywhere. We must do both at the same time. So thanks for bringing that up, Val. Thank you, Val, from Mackay. Let's take a call from Graham in Tasmania. Hi, Graham. Hello. Graham, what are your thoughts? You know, the Bible is inspired word of God. It's prophecy, and we've got prophecy in process now. And one of the things is that the Muslims... You know, uh, Arabia has a caliphate now, which stretches right across Arabia. There's 34 countries... They are not going to go away. They're going to play a big force in the last days. And I'll go back to the Bible again. We are now being punished. God said, I'll send the worst of the Gentiles against you because we are rejecting God outrightly because we are not turning to God. He's sending these sufferings upon us and it's not going to go away. We need to repent Turn to God, because all these things are in Scripture. Graham, some good thoughts in there. A response from Elizabeth Kendall. I agree with you absolutely. What we need more than anything in the world is for revival in the church and for the church to start really being what she is supposed to be, a light uh, to the nations and salt to to the nations and, and yeast and to really making a difference in this world. Uh, and, you know, this is the whole, uh, this is at the centre of everything in Scripture. We cannot be putting our trust in, in armies and in diplomacy and in politics and in the great projects of people like, like the Tower of Babel and things like that. Our faith must be in God. The church needs to repent and turn back to God and our nations need to uh, turn to God. And, and this is the task that's still ahead of us. Thank you so much to Graham from Tasmania. Let's take a call. Michael is in Sydney. Hello, Michael. Welcome along. Uh, yes, thank you for receiving me. Yes, I, I'd like to understand the mu- Muslim situation. I've got a friend that's a Muslim and he doesn't like them. But it's okay for them to get in get in planes and kill innocent people, including Muslims, and, and for them to go along because someone doesn't like the Koran, rape rape a few women that have nothing to do with it and just innocent. I, I think that the, the, uh, the government has the right idea to send them back, and particularly uh, in America, I reckon they send them back and let them fight amongst themselves. If a woman can't come into this country without that stupid veil on and, and, and walk as an Australian and be an Australian, don't come. If you can't be an Australian... Don't come to this country because this is a wonderful country. My people came from overseas and we live in this country. We love this country and you abide by the rules. And and the Koran, kick it out. It's a rotten book and it's a blasphemous book and there's nothing to do with God. I, I'm a religious person. I'm a, I'm a Catholic, but I'm born again Christian and, and I believe in God and, and the Father Almighty. And for them, 
to blasphemise that, I think it's wrong. Let, let them go Michael, back. some great thoughts in there, and one particular to draw attention to, and something that is obviously going to be quite a significant issue, and that is uh, the burqa or the face coverings, and we're seeing in Germany now, where uh, the German Chancellor is uh, is now uh, rising up and saying no burkas in Germany. And so that is a debate, and it's a, perhaps a sideline to our conversation today. But your comment, Elizabeth Kendall, in response to Michael. Oh, a couple of things. There was one, one comment you made very early on, Michael, that really, uh, really gripped me. You said, uh, I have a friend who's a Muslim, and he doesn't like Muslims. He doesn't like them. And talking about the, the fundamentalist Islamists and the jihadists. And this is such an important thing for us to remember. In Islam... A person who is born to a Muslim man is a Muslim from birth and they are not allowed to leave. So they don't choose to be Muslims. There are lots and lots of lots of Muslims out there who have no idea what the Quran expects of them, what Islam expects of them and what the Quran teaches. Uh, a lot of Muslims uh, don't even start thinking about Islam until they come to a country like Australia where someone says, what do you believe? Um, and they have to start thinking about it. They've never thought about it before. So we, we need to keep that in mind. We also need to keep in... We also, I also like the point that the government needs to actually be very serious about who it does let into this country. There are Muslims, you know, who have no idea about Islam and just want to live their lives in freedom. And uh, many, make wonder, many of these people make wonderful citizens. And there are other Muslims who, right from the beginning, are so fundamentalist, they have no intention of assimilating, no intention of integrating, no intention of ever voting for a non-Muslim or anything like that. Uh, I don't believe we need to be taking in uh, these people. The, this issue of the burqa is on the agenda again. A burqa is not a little headscarf. It's the full covering that has the face covered so you can't see the face. And this is, a, this is a, I believe, a very offensive uh, garment. It's a garment that says, I am the most fundamentalist of all Muslims, and I don't want you to speak to me. I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to lay your infidel eyes upon me. Don't talk to me. I am separate from you. And, and, and it is a, a challenge. And I think that if uh, people want to wear the burqa, they should live somewhere where the burqa is worn by people. I believe that could be grounds for people not coming in into the country. So, yes, this is on the agenda in Germany again. We've also got uh, this case in Australia at the moment where we have a Muslim woman uh, absolutely refusing to remove her burqa and to stand for, the, for a judge in a trial. And it looks like she's going to be uh, charged with contempt and, and a whole lot of things. So, you know, these are big issues that have been uh, brought into our country. And I think that our immigration policy, you know, we don't have to take in these problems. We have to deal with them because they're here, but we don't have to take them in. OK, thank you so much uh, for uh, your insight today uh, to our, uh, our caller, Michael, from Sydney. Uh, we've taken another call from an earlier caller, <clears throat> pardon me, who called back uh, Elizabeth uh, asking the question, uh, who wrote the Quran? Uh, he wants, wants an answer. Have you got, a, a, have you got a, a brief response to that question? Oh, not a brief one. <laughs> now, there's some really great websites, you know, on, on uh, apologetic, Christian Muslim apologetics, and they go into this um, uh, Acts 17 apologetics, um, understanding Islam, 
um, things like that. There's some great websites out there that go into this in detail. Basically, it was uh, they are a collection of uh, Muhammad's uh, revelations that were gathered up uh, quite some time after Muhammad lived. These were uh, uh, gathered into collections. There were so many different collections that ultimately one of the caliphs decided that one book should be kept and all the other Qurans should be burned. And they had the first ever Quran burning day. And they burned all the Qurans and they kept one and they decided that would be the Quran and all the copies would be made from there. But they were gathered up by people uh, some time after and it's a very, very interesting story. It has n- nothing, nothing like... The, uh, the 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 writing down of the scriptures and the careful copying of the scriptures, it doesn't stand up to uh, scrutiny, really. Elizabeth, running out of time, I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about how we as Christian believers should respond uh, in this psychological warfare that's going on and psychological warfare doesn't restrict itself within geographical borders. It is at work here in Australia. We're Christian believers. How do we respond uh, confronting the propaganda, the idea of ideologies that are uh, so significant that they threaten our very freedoms? What are your thoughts on how Christians respond? There's only one way to deal with propaganda, and that is we must make ourselves into discerning individuals. And the way we do that is we read and we study and we become intelligent and we become informed and so that, you know, I mean, I'm, I've turned on the news. It doesn't happen quite so much now as it used to a few years ago, but you'd see on the news a Western journalist standing in front of a bushy-bearded jihadist wielding a knife and waving a black flag and shouting, Alu Akbar, and the journalist would be talking about, you know, the, the rebels who are fighting for democracy and freedom in, in Syria. Well, you know... Anyone who understands what they're looking at, who understands Islam, who understands uh, the history, they will know that that is rubbish. But the only way we are ever going to discern propaganda is to get ourselves informed in the first place. So we have to start reading. We have to start reading seriously and studying. And we need to be prayerful, prayerfully discerning. And there's a big case study uh, just to our north that is about to unfold, uh, this trial of AHOC in Indonesia, the Christian governor of Jakarta on trial uh, on trial for blasphemy laws. And you say this is going to start next Tuesday. Mm. We're going to see here, you've got uh, perhaps Christians who will be praying for Ahok. Uh, you've got the Islamic community that will be wanting his demise. They want to see him jailed. Uh, and you've got a secular uh, government that is trying to balance all of this. Has secular government got the capacity to be able to uh, to meet the challenges that Islam is raising, Elizabeth? And uh, running short of very, very short of time, but a quick response to, uh, to the idea of all of these different uh, sections that are interested in the outcome of what might happen in Indonesia? Well, I think the situation in Indonesia is that if the Muslims don't get what they want, they are going to riot. And uh, there are plenty of Islamic groups who have already offered support. ISIS has offered support, and al-Nusra in Syria has already offered support and called on Muslims to fan the flames of jihad. 
in Indonesia. Well, I think it's very difficult for any government to deal with that. They have to, uh, the government's going to have to be prepared to, uh, to do the hard task and to take this head on. It looks as though when he is jailed, that would appear to me to be an appeasement uh, to uh, the Islamists. So if that happens, and uh, you know, we can't preempt what will happen, but uh, if that happens, that will be a, a level of appeasement, won't it? Oh, I think it will. I, I think um, it, it's quite possible that as the law stands... AHOC may have broken the law, so uh, the law will be used against him. Uh, So it won't be just that the appeasement actually happened a long time ago when the law was actually put on the books. Uh, So this is just a consequence of of, of an appeasement that happened some time time ago. But even then, there will be Muslims who believe that he should die. Mm. Well, Elizabeth, we have run out of time. I'll point people to the website where you can read some more about the sorts of things we're talking about today. You can go to elizabethkendall.com and uh, that's the central website where you can go to all sorts of different uh, elements of our conversation today and uh, the Religious uh, Liberty Prayer Bulletin, uh, the Religious Liberty Monitoring. Uh, You'll be able to go to elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth is our guest. You'll also be able to get a hold of her latest book, which is called After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Elizabeth Kendall is a Religious Liberty Analyst. Elizabeth, always so good getting your insight. Thanks so much for being with us today on 2020. And thanks for having me, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.